Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. I'm really excited to share today's interview with you with Carl Hemsch, the owner of Loving Cup Winery and Vineyards in Virginia. Here's what's special about Carl and Loving Cup. It is the only certified organic winery in Virginia and one of less than a handful of certified organic wineries on the entire East Coast. What he's doing has enormous risk to it. And here's another hint about how he's making it happen. It's not easy. It is difficult work. And it comes from a place of deep caring about the importance of being organic. Why else would you put in the kind of work that Carl has to put into, as you'll hear? What's amazing about it, though, is Carl is eliminating excuses that anyone else might have in anywhere else in the world about growing organically. Because if you can grow organically in Virginia and be successful at making delicious wine there, you can really do it anywhere. It is one of the worst places in terms of disease pressure, fungus pressure, insect pressure, all of the things that compete with grapevines and make it difficult to grow them. He has to face on a daily basis. And then there are years when it rains 100 inches or more during the growing season, or they get a freeze on Mother's Day, which decimates 80% of the vineyard. We cover how he actually does this what are the specific processes and techniques he uses to make organic work in Virginia? We talk about hybrids, and we talk about the future of viticulture in America, which I think he's trailblazing. Carl is one of my heroes solely because of the bravery and perseverance that he demonstrates in making organic viticulture work where he is and the risks that he's taking to do it. So I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I do, and I know that you will get a ton of great information. If anybody is growing organically or wants to grow organically east of the Rockies, as Carl says in the interview, please contact him because he's both a a valuable resource and somebody who would love to share knowledge and information with anybody else who's doing it. One other heads up about this interview is that there are some audio issues. We conducted this interview in the lead up to, and we were interrupted by a large lightning storm. So I think it caused some connection issues, which when we put the interview together, my audio falls out at certain times when I'm asking questions. His is a little pixelated at times. Nothing terrible. We've cleaned it up as much as possible, but bear with us as we deal with the realities of connecting across the continent during a lightning storm. So let's dig in. The sponsor for today's episode is Centralis Wine. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S Wine. You can learn more about Centralis at centraliswine.com. And full disclosure, Centralis is my winery. I started Centralis because I noticed a disconnect between the values that many wine drinkers have and the kinds of wine they choose to drink. I wanted to give those of you who love wine an option to buy wine that reflects your values. So Centralis is built on two pillars. The first is that Centralis wine will always be made with, at minimum, organically grown grapes. And the second is that we will always tell you every ingredient that was added during winemaking. Our first vintage will be released very soon. In fact, it may be available by the time you hear this. 
and it's pretty limited. So if you want to get some, please go to our website, centraliswine.com, and sign up for our wine list. Or go ahead and buy wine. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S-Wine.com. We're also on Instagram, at centraliswine, and I can't wait to share our wines with you. Well, Carl, thank you for joining me for this, and I want to welcome you to the Organic Wine Podcast. Thanks for having me, Adam. I want... Absolutely. No, it's great to talk to you again. Every time we talk, uh, I feel like I learned something new, and you know, I'm a big fan. I think we'll dig into some of the juicy stuff in this, um, but I'll just tease it by saying I think what you're doing is really remarkable and can offer a lot of great helpful stuff for people uh, doing wine viticulture of various kinds across the country around the world so but let's set it up a little bit i want to ask you to tell us a little bit about loving cup and where you're located all right so um we're in central virginia just south of charlottesville um we uh, so the the ava is called monticello you know thomas jefferson's home um, sure. um, the Monticello wine region has 35 maybe. So, you know, it's not Napa, but, um, you know, it's, it's one of the, uh, the more, uh, densely packed, uh, AVAs in Virginia. Um, I think we have, maybe we're up to nine AVAs now. So it's, again, it's not California, but, um, we're, uh, uh, we are, sort of on the southwestern edge of that ABA. Great. And the winery is called Loving Cup. Uh, tell us a little bit about what's unique about Loving Cup. Right. So um, we are the only certified organic vineyard uh, and certified organic winery in Virginia. Uh, and there are only a handful of us on the East Coast. There's uh, there's one up in Vermont. Uh, there's one in North Carolina. I mean, there is a possibility that others might have slipped past my notice, but uh, I'm only aware of us three on the East Coast. So that makes us unique for Virginia. Um, I mean, I, I wish we had company, uh, and we did. There, there were two other organic vineyards in Virginia, uh, but now we're we're the only one. They've sort of, there's an attrition rate to organic vineyards that sound like <laughs> the East Coast. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I half expected that we would be, uh, uh, we, we would have found the end of our story at some point, because uh, we've been doing this maybe, what, like 11, 12 years, something like that? I don't know. Um, and, you know, when you do something that's inherently uh, unstable, like spinning plates or something, you just expect that at some point, you're going to catch a bad break or lose focus or something and everything's going to come crashing down. Um, so in that, <laughs> that regards are fairly lucky uh, to have um, lasted longer than I expected us to. Okay. Well, I, I mean, when we get into some of what you've had to deal with, I don't know how many people would agree with you that you've been lucky, but it sounds <laughs> like <laughs> at least you've been stalwart. Um, there you go. I was gonna. I was gonna compare, you know, the organic wineries on the East Coast to an exclusive club, but it sounds more like an endangered species. Might be more accurate. Um, but uh, let's start a little further back. Why did you get into wine? 
Um, you know, I, I, like, like many of us, like we just goofed around with wine, uh, goofed around with fruit. Um, dad and mom had like a garden growing up and it used to be just a vegetable garden and, you know, organic by default, you know, just out of, out of neglect, you know, you plant them, you pull weeds every once in a while, then you harvest. Um, and then right. um, after I left for college, I think they started playing with fruit and, you know, raspberries, blackberries, blueberries. And uh, we just started making wine from from that fruit. And it was, um, as you know, there's something super uh, engaging about fermentation and yeah. it's the bubbles and the smells um, mm. and it makes you happy. And then you also know that it's going to make other people happy once it's all done. And, you know, there's just something fairly um, um, joyful about making wine from the fruit that you grew. Uh, and that's sort of how we got into winemaking, but had no, uh, no grand plans for having a commercial winery. But um, I worked for other vineyards and wineries Um prior to us starting our own vineyard and winery. Um, but you know, uh, what's your question about? Well, just how you got into wine. What, what, what excited you to, to make you cross that threshold into this is going to be a commercial venture and we're going to start investing time and space on the farm and everything like that. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to say that there was like this, you know, Robert Parker epiphany moment, you know, where my life changed when I opened a bottle of wine. Um, but it, it was, it, you know, nothing was uh, quite so clear. Um, there was not like a, uh, a fulcrum <laughs> and we decided uh-huh. to, you know, to, to, to lean over towards the let's do it. Um, it just kind of happened. I mean, it's, so we, we put in a hundred vines for ourselves. again, like my, my, my folks had, you know, this, this garden, and so we were putting in a hundred grapevines just to make wine from for ourselves and um, didn't really have any thought about it being organic. Again, we just like didn't want to have to take care of it um, or wanted to be able to neglect it and harvest. And um, right. since I, I knew folks <laughs> in the industry, I, I asked and said, so like, how can I do this? And they said, well, you can't because everything wants your roots or your shoots or your grapes um, you know, animals, insects, and diseases. And you can't just like, it doesn't matter what varieties, I mean, even wild uh, grapevines, you can't just plant them and walk away from them. Um, so uh, that's how we got involved with, you know, the, this organic concept initially was, all right, so how can we actually do this without spraying like high powered sprays? Um, right. And um, I, that was going to be my next big question was why organic? Um so yeah, so that talk a, a little bit more about that. What well, you wanted so, to avoid those sprays that said people told you were necessary. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, wild vines. Um, not all wild varieties are um, are disease resistant, but you know, it, even on very wet years, you can look up at these wild vines and see the leaves like uh, just riddled with anthracnose and black rot, and you know, so. No, no grapevines, uh, even the wild ones, are going to be pristine um, uh, unless they are sprayed with something. And so um, we realized um, that we knew a vineyard consultant 
uh, a fairly renowned vineyard consultant, you know, for Central Virginia. And uh, we had known him as an acquaintance for like 20 years. And so we asked him, so what can we do uh, other than just give up on planting these, these vines for ourselves? And he had suggested that we look into soft sprays and disease resistant varieties. And uh, again, like we had no concept of being certified organic. We were just trying to not cover ourselves in materials that, you know, I would feel guilty about being in the washing machine with, with my wife and my daughter's clothes. And, um, and uh, so we just did the research and, and said, well, let's just give it a shot. So, you know, we put in a hundred vines, um, and put in some varieties that had just been released and tried as many different um, of these new materials, um, you know, these biological materials and botanical materials uh, that were OMRI listed. I mean, that didn't mean anything to me at the time, except that it meant it was, to me, safe. Um, and um, it just, you know, we broke up every row um, of 25 vines into eight panels. And a panel is a space between line posts. And then gave so one panel for each row was a control panel and then i had seven different spray programs which is really annoying but seven different spray programs for each of the four varieties that we initially planted because the the idea was no one there wasn't a template like i made the notebook you know that i gave to this consultant as a proposal Uh, it would have been nice if the notebook was already made and i could just sort of flip through it so we had to go through and evaluate which varieties might actually work for Virginia, what what materials might actually be able to hold off the diseases that we get in, in the mid-Atlantic. And uh, we just, you know, in two years, we had figured we had learned enough to maybe do it on a larger scale. So those first hundred vines, we were just, we planted for ourselves. But by the time we got that all on the ground and had done the research and thought, hey, we might actually have a shot at this. That's when we started thinking about maybe we could do this commercially. Um, and, you know, it's it's hubris to think that you can do something that no one else has done before. But, um, you know, we did everything in steps so that if we, you know, if we failed after a couple of years, we could have canceled the, um, uh, uh, the initial vine order for the whole field. Um, right. you know, and then I, the, the, all along the way, you know, then you don't build the building right away in case, in case the whole vineyard in the field fails, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you have to have to all these, all these offerings that were built into the, uh, <laughs> into the plan. And so far we wow. haven't had to take any of them. Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's a considerable investment and yeah. You know, there, there is a reason why there aren't organic vineyards on the East Coast. You can't assume <laughs> that no one has never, no one has thought of this before, right? Um, so going into it knowing there's probably a good reason why they don't exist, um, I had to acknowledge that, you know, we were engaging in a fairly risky uh, undertaking and we're trying to go right. into it with as much humility as possible, but also acknowledging that we just, we didn't know. Um so, um, yeah, so that's how we got into an organic vineyard. I mean, it's like, I don't think that I proposed the idea to my father. Um, he says I proposed it to him. I recall him proposing it to me. Um, so the actual the origin is, is unclear. So it sounds like you're trying to figure out who to blame for your current situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for the 12 hours a day in 95 degree heat. Um, <laughs> right. 
Uh, that's funny. So, and just to clarify, your both your vineyards and your winery are certified organic, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, certified separately. Um, you know, they're it's certified by the same organic certifier, but the USDA NOP uh, National Organic Program NOP um, they consider the uh, pr- the the farm as a producer of the ingredients and the winery as the producer of the end product, the wine. So right. those, those two entities are considered separate. So they're certified separately. Um, right. But that, so the, the vineyard got certified in 2012 um, before our first harvest and the winery was certified in 2016. Um, and only because we just didn't know how to answer the questions on, I mean, it's, it's a 75 page application you have to fill out wow. and you know, a lot, a lot of the questions just didn't make any sense, you know, because they wanted to know how we were going to make the wine over a year in advance of us harvesting the grapes. And that, you know, <laughs> as you know, like you don't know what exactly you have goals for winemaking, but you don't exactly know what techniques you might employ or what, um, uh, wine, uh, making processing aids you might use because you aren't sure of your final chemistry or the quality of the fruit or any sort of challenges that you may have um, right. as a result of the growing season. And they wanted to know up front how we were going to make the wine. And I was like, I just don't know how to answer these questions. So it took a few years to figure out how to answer the question in such a way that it was honest, right. <laughs> most important, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, but also satisfied their need to know what we intended to do. So got it. I mean, that, since you brought that up, your the certification process, uh, is it time and labor and financially intensive or, you know, some of those two of those three, one of those three? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, so the in the vineyard, the record keeping is not as uh, onerous as it is in the winery. Um, they are uh, much more concerned about the labeling of something as organic um, and that the end product is pure <laughs> and that you verify that everything you say you're going to do, you've done. Um, so the record keeping in the winery is insane. And wow. you know, every every day that we are doing something in the winery, it's like 45 minutes to an hour of paperwork um, wow. just to record um, what we've done. And the vineyard, you know, my, the, my farm journal, you know, what, what I do every single day outside, you know, the, what insects I see, if I spray anything, all of that, I'm going to do anyway. And so it, the, the, the burden of record keeping is not that bad in the vineyard. Um, the what was the other one you said uh, financial you said that. yeah yeah I mean it's it costs money for sure um, it's um, uh, we're in a state I don't know how many states do this but we're in a state that has the that administers the cost share program uh, the organic cost share so it's um, uh, up to seventy five percent or seventy five percent up to a thousand dollars seven hundred fifty dollars or something like that I don't know it's a substantial amount of money. Um, that they will um, uh, pay us back. So we, we pay the money up front and then we submit the invoices and, and they, they give us a reimbursement. So oh. 
That's I mean, great. I, I think there is some tax incentive in California or something similar to that as well. Yeah, that I've heard about. And you know, that's that's uh, that's the most common thing I hear when folks are talking about um, why, like particularly like small farms in in our area, why they won't, don't want to get certified is because of the expense. And um, I mean, I, I can't speak to that. All I know is that you know, if you spend a thousand dollars in certification costs you end up only spending $250 and you right. know, $250 is still enough money to, you know, if you're a, um, a selling produce at a farmer's market. Um, but if you know, you're selling $30 bottles of wine, you know, that, that takes care of itself pretty quickly. Um, right. Yeah. And you know, I think most people get a, have a sense of what it means to be organic in vineyards, you know, not adding any synthetic sprays on the you know on the vines on the soil not using any synthetic fertilizers all organic you know compost and things like that but what are the what are some of the other than the record keeping what about the winery are there any requirements of what you can and can't use or what you have to do or not do in terms of the processes yes yeah so i mean what it comes down to is fewer tools in the toolbox um okay you know, um you know, making organic wine is not as difficult as making organic grapes, for sure. Um, okay. That being said, when things go wrong in the winery, you know, I'm spinning around like Chicken Little because I don't have the background in chemistry to really understand what I'm doing to fix my problems. But, um, right. you know, a, a conventional winery may have all sorts of um, uh, yeast nutrients and fining um, aids, Um um, to keep a fermentation going well and happy and, um, keep the yeast, um, from making any off aromas. Um, we really don't have any of those things. I mean, we have a couple of yeast nutrients that are, uh, OMRI certified. Um, we have to use organic yeast and there aren't a lot of those out there. You know, for anyone who's made their own beer or made their own wine, you know, you know how much fun it is to open up the catalog and to see the 75 to hundred different strains of yeast that you can <laughs> right. use. And, you know, you, you fantasize about them like you do with the, uh, the burpee seed catalog. Oh, you know, I can't wait to use this one. But when you're making organic wine, you know, they changed the rule in I think 2008 or 2010 up to that point, you were allowed to use conventional wine or yeast strains uh, you just had to justify it, you know, that you were doing it. But now, so says my certifier, um, uh, organic yeasts only. And so okay. there are only a handful <laughs> commercially available right. yeast strains. So you take away some of the artistry um, uh, of winemaking just by having so few uh, yeast strains to choose from. Uh, but I said finding, uh, finding agents. Um, so like if um, we don't really have – in an, in, I'm going to speak to our particular uh, winery because I've only ever worked for one organic winery before, and I've only ever been certified by one organic certifier. And my understanding is that certifiers don't look at all things equally. And so CCOF or, or uh, Oregon Till or some of the uh, larger West Coast um, certifying agencies may um, allow their wineries to do things that our certifier doesn't and vice versa. So if I say I can't do this, it's just our experience. And, you know, someone else uh, at an organic winery in California might say, well, I can do this just fine. Um, so 
Uh, I am not an expert. I only know what we are allowed or not allowed to do by our certifier. Okay. Um, But uh, uh, so finding agents, really the only thing that we can use is like bentonite, uh, which is is, um, a clay. Um, Right. And pretty intense too, from what I understand. What, bentonite? I haven't personally worked with it, but. Um, I mean, it, 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 the, the worst thing that can happen is it can strip flavor. Um, but it's, you know, you, you wouldn't right. use very much of it. It's, it's used to, um, uh, to settle, um, uh, some of the turbidity out of wine. When you, when you cold stabilize wine, uh, you may or may not, depending on your level of protein, uh, choose to add bentonite to help make your wine protein stable. Um, because you can't right. filter out protein instability, or at least I can, I don't have the right filter for it, but, um, um, is filtering so, allowed as, as, as an organic winery? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, mechanical removal of bacteria and yeast is awesome <laughs> because it means you That's don't allowed. have to use, okay. you know, um, a sulfite or whatnot to, to, to keep it under control. So we, we actually, that's one of the big things, right? The, the sulfite levels are, are one of the things that is across the board. I think like under a hundred, if you want to say made with organic grapes and what is it like under 15, if you want to say organic wine parts per million. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you, you're, you're, is that right? Well, you're super close, right? So uh, less than a hundred parts okay. per million, if you're going to do the made with organic grapes label and that's of, um, yeah, so the, the the code reads in a way that suggests that they don't under they didn't understand when they wrote it what total sulfite meant. Um, I'm because uh, you know total SO2 is different than free SO2. Total SO2 right. is actually a lab number. Um, so it talks in the code in the NOP code about total sulfite, but it's not clear if it's total sulfite or total sulfite added. Um, so we're uh, taking the more conservative approach uh, and are cons- assuming it's total sulfite added, um, which means that it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's more restrictive um, than if right because there's already could, some existing sulfites in the wine. Correct, but you know, bump. sulfite gets bound up and and it right. doesn't all like you can add a hundred parts per million of sulfite, and by the time you bottle, it only shows sixty five total. Yeah. Uh, and maybe 20 free, you know, so right. if this went by this lab number of total, you could be, con- you could possibly cheat the code. <laughs> uh, <but> we we, we <laughs> consider it. total added and that seems more restrictive and more in the spirit of the way the code was written. So, Got it. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So um, uh, if it has the USDA organic logo, um, then no sulfite was added whatsoever. Got it. Okay, so it's not 10, it's not 15. Now that 10 ppm number is important on the back label where it says contains sulfites. So if you are making a conventional wine but you don't add any sulfite, um, you don't have to put contains sulfites on the label um, unless the when you bottle it, the, the, the sulfite, the free sulfite is um, 10 ppm or more, right? Um, right. Maybe it's not free. Maybe it's the total. Anyway, uh, it's irrelevant. Um, the so we've made wine without sulfite before, but the naturally occurring sulfite was in excess of ten parts per million. So <laughs> so you can't 
well, we went around in circles with TTB on this, and it, it just it's it really is tiring to be like the first time that someone encounters something, you know, like right. know, like being a pioneer. It's just like being a first. And so the, uh, I mean, I can't imagine we're the only one, but maybe this particular TTB reviewer had not dealt with it before. And they were denying the organic labeling because the, um, uh, not be made with organic grapes, but the actual USDA organic logo because our naturally occurring sulfite was in excess of 10. So after we went around on it, we, um, uh, we compromised and we put contains naturally occurring sulfites on the back label, which I think I've seen in other organic wines before. So um, right. that, that satisfied that TTB reviewer. Got it. And speaking of your label, uh, you list ingredients, I noticed, which I love that you do that. Is that a requirement of certification or is that just something you do voluntarily? Yeah. Um, it is a requirement of our certifier. Um, okay. I've noticed that other organic wines don't have to have the ingredient <laughs> on labels. No, um, you're just the lucky one. Well, again, like it's, it, it said, this is what our certifier tells us we have to do. So we do it. Um, right. I've sent them images of other organic wines from this country that don't have ingredients lists. And they say, it's irrelevant. This is what you have to do. So that's why we have an ingredients list on uh, on the label. I mean, it's it's clunky looking. Um, I would prefer the the label to be cleaner, but you know uh -huh. there aren't many things on the ingredients list, so it doesn't take up that much space. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, and what's really funny is that there is the wine consists. You know, depends on whether it's uh, red or white. But, but wine consists of like 99.9 something percent grapes, you know? And so right. um, if you look at an ingredients list on, on any kind of wine, there, even conventional wine is not going to have much other than maybe grapes, sugar, sulfite, and what else would be there? Maybe like uh, tannins or something, um, you know, the flavors from tannins. Uh, because most of these things that the winery uses, whether organic or uh, or conventional, they don't end up in the wine. That's the whole point of having a fining agent. It does its job. It falls to the bottom of the tank or the bottom of the barrel, and then you rack off it. You know, I'm sure there are traces, right. um, but like the whole point is to leave that fining agent behind. Um, and so, an ingredients list is actually only supposed to. Again, this is our understanding from our certifier is only supposed to capture the ingredients and not your finding agents um, or what the oh. certifier calls processing aids. Um, oh, that's weird. Yeah. So okay. like if you look at um, a, if you look at a box of like organic cookies, everything on the, um, the cookie, uh, everything on the ingredients list are things like oats and sugar and wheat or whatever, right. you know, flour, um, all those things you put in, you stir it up, you bake it and it's still there. But, you know, there are a number of products, including wine, where you add things and then you take things away. <laughs> right. And so those, those are not considered ingredients. So they don't end up in the ingredients list. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, even if you have a conventional vineyard that um, or a conventional winery that has an ingredients list, you know, they may be using processing aids and are not putting them on their ingredients list because they're not ingredients. Right. Um, at least that's my understanding. I have lived super limited experience since I've only ever 
made wine for one winery. Right. Well, I mean, nobody has to put ingredients on if you're conventional anyway. Um, so, and most people don't. I'm, I'm a big proponent of ingredients labeling. That's why I was excited to see you guys had it. But I, I believe everybody should be required to add, to list everything that was added during winemaking. Like anything, any human ingredient in inter, and, you know, anything that was a result of human intervention that was added at all during the process, whether trace elements result in it or in the wine, in the finished wine. I think it's it's more about what a, shows what a winemaker is willing to do. I'm kind of going on a tangent here, so no, no, please do. Okay, but but um, yeah, I think it because you it tells the story, it tells like the kind of values that the winemaker has. It tells like you know what was thought to be okay to be added, and and I think that's all really important. I think you know it, and and a lot of people aren't going to know the difference, but you know a lot of wine enthusiasts will know the difference. You'll be able to tell. Like, oh, this person is doing a complete, like, you don't even need a natural certification. You can just tell, like, if they just have grapes as the only ingredient and they've been required to list everything that they used, you're like, well, this is a natural wine, basically, <laughs> like, or organic grapes or something, you know, um, versus wondering because there's no ingredients listed, like, well, what, what kind of wine is this? What, you know, anyway, that's my tangent. I would love to see that uh, become a requirement. Um, but I love that you guys are doing it anyway, in, in the part that you're doing it. Um, I, I want to now dig into some of the juicy elements of what it's like to be an organic winery and wine grower, or just any kind of grape grower on the East coast. What have you had to deal with? What are some of the challenges that you faced, you know, and be graphic? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, graphic, but without curse words, right? Not <laughs> sure. Language. Well, yeah. it's okay. Whatever you want to do. If it requires it, it requires it. <laughs> this is a family show. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, not surprising the 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 weather. I mean, it's it's the it's the it's what every farmer needs to have, and it's the it's the challenge that every farmer deals with is. Um, it's rain when you don't want it or not enough rain. Um, in the mid Atlantic, it's usually too much rain, um, uh -huh. too much, too, too much, uh, too frequent, uh, rains, yeah. rain at the wrong time of the day. Um, and, um, you know, because it is usually hot and humid and rainy in, uh, Virginia, um, or for any of the other, other mid Atlantic States, uh, we tend to have more fungal pathogens. Um, uh, I don't know that this is true, but the um, one of the things that was explained to me early on was that the mid-Atlantic of the United States is one of the most biologically diverse places in the world. You know, it's one of those things that yeah. people say to make themselves feel better. It might be somewhat <laughs> true. You know, maybe we're top 100. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, there are really just – there's a dozen – of major grapevine fungal pathogens that we have to deal with. Um, wow. And if you are um, spraying Chardonnay conventionally, you have probably the same kind of disease pressure than if you're spraying my, um, my uh, hybrids with organic sprays. You know, it's like it, they are um, 
like Chardonnay or any of the, the Vitus vinifera, they just don't have much of an immune response to, to pathogen attack, right? And so right. you have to spray um, these uh, conventional materials, these fungicides that work really, really well, but you have to spray them if you're spraying Vitus vinifera or you're growing Vitus vinifera. Um, you know, and so uh, folks like you might think, oh, it must be super hard to be organic uh, in Virginia. And it is, and it, you know, it's, um, Can you repeat I'm, that again? You, you did cut out there. You say no. folks like me might think, and then it kind of picks yeah, up. Yeah, that, that it's it's very, it's very difficult to be organic in Virginia, and it is. Um, I imagine it's also really difficult to be conventional vinifera vineyard in Virginia. Um, <laughs> you know, like I, it, it's no joke, you know, because those vines don't do anything for them uh, except make, you know, beautiful grapes. Um, but they don't provide any help. Um, the varieties that we grow, they they put up a decent fight, you know, a, against right. the, the spores that land on their leaves or land on the grapes. Um, you know, and so what we, we don't grow any varieties that uh, that don't have um, a good immune response to black rot, um, uh, downy mildew, powdery mildew, anthracnose, homopsis. Um, the late season rots. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we pick varieties that have good general disease resistance. Um, and that's how we are able, that, that's one of the three legs of our stool. Um, uh, you know, like a sitting stool. Um, yeah, that, uh, the varieties that we grow have to stick up for themselves because honestly, we're not spraying anything on them that actually works. Um, you know, to, to, doesn't have the efficacy that a, um, a conventional grower would expect, you know, a conventional right. grower is going to spray something for black rot and know it's going to have 99% efficacy. <laughs> right. Like I'd be lucky if anything that I spray has 20% efficacy. Um, and so uh, you yeah. described it when we've talked in the past is you only have prophylactic options versus, uh, systemic or. Uh, suicidal <laughs> options. What are they, I, that's not the word. I'm making that up as a joke. But uh, essentially, you're just preventative, basically. And if something goes wrong, you don't really have a tool that knocks it out other than just cutting it out literally yeah. and manually. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you're talking about so systemics in uh, conventional sprays will get into the vascular system of the vine and will fight the disease from the inside out. That would be awesome, but we don't have anything like that. Uh, and then right. the other one I think you're referring to is something that has, it's like kickback. So like if a spore lands on a leaf and infects a leaf, then you spray it and then it kills. Again, um, right. so after the infection has happened, and we don't have anything, right. anything like that in organic. Um, there are some like um, oxidizers, like um, um, something that is made like baking soda or something that's made like hydrogen peroxide um, that is supposed to have some sort of ox most supposed to like fry the disease if it's out on the surface, but most of the diseases, as soon as they, they, they get into the, the leaf immediately. <laughs> so they, they yeah. are, they are protected from these like surface sprays. Um, but yeah, right. prophylactic sprays are really all we have. Um, and none of them work well enough to rely on them exclusively. So um, we are paying attention to the weather. We know generally, um, what kind of disease that we will see in a certain number of days after an, um, an overnight rain event. And then we'll set the calendar for it. And then that 
that morning we'll go out and start looking for leaves or looking for berries. And when we see it, we, we take it out of there. I mean, sanitation, right. if, so, the, so I said these, there are three legs to our stool. One is disease, yeah. um, disease resistant varieties. The other is sanitation. Uh, and if we don't go out there and pick out disease, you know, despite everything that we're doing, of course we're going to get disease because it's the mid Atlantic. Um, um, but if we can grab bad leaves or uh, bad berries or eventually bad clusters and get them out, then we can push the development of the disease further down the season. And eventually the clusters will be immune uh, to, you know, the various diseases. Um, black rot is the, is the variety that um, is most problematic for organic in Virginia. Um, but after five, six weeks after bloom, the lead or the, the, um, the berries are uh, immune to black rot. So if we can just prevent an infection for, you know, a month and a half after bloom, then we're, we're golden. And so that's when we get out there, we work really hard. And it's usually until about verasion. You know, when the grapes right. start to change color, that's when we know, Hey, we're, we're sort of out of the, out of the woods with black rot, we don't have to be quite so um, zealous with our disease removal. Carl wrote to me after this interview because he wanted to clear up something that he oversimplified in this moment. He did correctly say that the vines are susceptible to black rot for only five to six weeks after bloom. But then he made the implication that he doesn't feel safe about black rot until veraison, which is much longer than five to six weeks after bloom. That's his way of oversimplifying for the sake of being conservative and protective of the vines. He just wanted to clear that up. He was not suggesting that it was uh, five to six weeks from bloom to veraison. And so I just wanted to insert that here for clarity. Um, so you mentioned two of the three. So you're talking about selecting the right variety of grape being very clean and sanitizing any kind of infection that gets into the vineyard, removing it. And then what's the third? A uh, canopy management. So, okay. um, you know, uh, shoot positioning, um, leaf pulling, lateral pulling. Um, yeah. I mean the, the thinner and more airy, uh, are, so a canopy uh, for maybe folks who uh, aren't in the in the industry. That's that wall of leaves, you know that that um, provides all the energy uh, for ripening right. the grapes, right? Um, you know it depends on your training system, but you know um, if you have like a, a bush vine, it it is what it exactly what it sounds like. It's just a bush and shoots go everywhere. But um, you know most modern viticulture has this um, combination of metal and wood trellis that the vines grow on. Um, for an efficiency uh, and management standpoint, um, you know you can take care of your vines a particular way. And so, but when you when you everyone closes their eyes and they think of a vineyard, they think of these lines of green. That's that's those lines are the the, the canopy. You know that wall of leaves. Um, and if right. you have a nice thin, open, airy canopy, um, it doesn't trap humidity. When you get rains, it dries out quickly. You know, if it's a dense, super dense canopy, uh, you could get a rain and it not dry out for a couple of days. <laughs> and that entire right. time spores are being spread, right? So right. Um, uh, also, if you have, you know, pretty good canopy management, you're able to do things like pull leaves in the fruit zone and uncover all of your fruit. Um, 
uh, again, Can so you that, that you're you're able to pull. Uh, you pull the the leaves in the fruit zone. So if you have yeah. all of your your um, it, particularly it's, if it's vertical shoot positioning, uh, which is fairly common. It's again what everyone thinks of when they they close their eyes to think of grapevines, where the shoots sort of start at around belt height and they go up and the shoots and the, the clusters are just sort of hanging there all in like a band. Um, right. And so if you have this um, this fruit zone that is in just one little area, then you can manipulate that fruit zone in a way that doesn't um, does not detract from the overall canopy. So you pull leaves uh, uncovering all the fruit. Um, you don't have to, you know, um, it particularly um, you may not, you may not want to affect your juice chemistry that way. Uh, but for us, it's, it's a, it's a given like, because the varieties themselves uh, only do a certain percent of the job of disease resistance and the sprays that we use only do a, another small percentage. And uh, what I say, sanitation that kicks the, um, the ball down the road um, or kicks the can down the road a little while, you know, the canopy management also gives us another few percent of, of a uh, disease control. So, um, right. in the end, we have fruit, <laughs> you know, it, you, just, you just get out there every day. You do everything that you can think of. You hope you get lucky with, um, with the weather. And at the end of the season, you have fruit and you just sort of scratch your head and go, I can't believe we did it again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I, I imagine that, uh, since you, you know, since the fungus and molds and things that are attacking the vines thrive in those sort of dark, closed, not airy spaces. So you want to open up the canopy. You probably, the varieties of grapes that you want would be looser clusters. I imagine anything like Pinot Noir or any like tight bunch clusters would be nightmares for mildew in, in those conditions. I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So our variety selection, um, there is a four stage process and, it's it. <laughs> so we've grown um, six different production varieties. We're down to three now, and we've trialed fifty plus different trial varieties. Um, wow. Well, it sounds like it's not like we planted a half acre or something. Like we'll put in like a bundle or two of something, uh, which is right. like twenty five or fifty vines, and grow them for a few years. Um, you know, and uh, so it might be that after one season or within a couple of months, some it's clear that something's not going to work. Um, so it's 50 sounds impressive, but it really isn't. Um, you know, it's every year we pull out trial varieties. And so I think this year we put in six, six or seven different trial varieties uh, on a row just to, just to give it a whirl and see what we could get from it. Um, and these are all new. You're not like, so you're, you're talking like you're now in the over 50 different, varieties of grapes that you've tested yeah yeah well you know field test um so you know um, a a scientist would bristle at how um uh how uh with the lack of control (laughs) that we have you know we're we're just essentially putting it in the ground taking care of it the way that we take care of the varieties that we grow and just answer one question is it as good or better or worse than the varieties we already grow, you know, and is it worth growing more of, you know, and right. we have, we have a little bit more space left in the field where we can put in another variety or two 
of production um, uh, varieties. And we're just waiting for something to wow me. Um, we have a four-stage criteria for picking new varieties to even trial. Not to you know plant an acre in the ground, but to actually just put in the ground to test. Um, uh, the first uh, is disease resistance, general disease resistance, but most specifically black rot. And then secondarily, downy. You know, a downy will take your leaves, black rot will take your fruit. If they're super susceptible to either of them, it's pointless for me to even and try it. Um, the, the second is what you were alluding to is, is cluster architecture. You know, it's, if, the, if it's a, a super tight cluster, it's pointless for me to try to grow it. Because I know it's not going to, it's not going to work late in the season uh, for us. So um, you know, obviously we wouldn't grow Pinot Noir because it's vinifers, infidel, or thing like that. But um, uh, you know, there are some hybrids like Vignoles. I don't know if anyone out there knows what Vignoles is, but it's a white variety. Um, yeah. uh, it has a super tight cluster. It's supposed to be pretty disease resistant, but I'm not going to grow it. Um, Let's see. The third is the vine can't be phytotoxic to copper or sulfur. So mm -hmm. copper is one of the um, elemental um, sprays that we can use to control um, or try to control black rot or downy. Um, and sulfur is an elemental spray that um, is pretty decent at controlling powdery mildew. Um, and we don't have many things that actually work. So to have varieties that we can't actually spray these things that work okay, um, it also it seems sort of pointless um, to grow a variety that I'm going to burn the leaves off if I try to use something. Um, and the last one is wine style. And I know that's it's where a lot of people start. Like what kind of wine do I want to make? Um, right, but in right. the end, if I don't have leaves and I don't have fruit, it's it's irrelevant as to what kind of style of wine the grapes make. <laughs> right. um, so, you know, um, so wine style that um, precludes our picking things like Norton. Um, I don't know if, are you familiar with Cynthiana, otherwise known as Norton? I, yeah. I mean, yeah. I know it. I probably tasted it too. Yeah. I'm from Pennsylvania. So, you know, I've tasted some funky stuff for sure. Some less, I, I shouldn't say funky, some esoteric grapes. Yeah, well, it's a, Norton is uh, is considered a Virginia grape. It's one of those like natural hybrids. There's such a thing. Um, uh, it's been around forever. It's um, it makes a kind of wine that I don't care for, and so mm -hmm. uh, that that precludes our planting Norton. Um, I mean, I could I could ding it on um, uh, phytotoxicity to sulfur. I could ding it uh -huh. for tight clusters, um, but at any rate, um, wine style is the last of the, the four um, uh, criteria. And you know, like what, what we planted this year, we planted some things that I had initially, you know, like after you know forty or fifty varieties. You know, you, you, I'm going to say I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel, right? <laughs> varieties, so going to the bench. Yeah. <laughs> you know, varieties that I had said, well, I, there's no point to me, for me to grow this. Like, I'm not going to enjoy this. Um, so now I'm giving, a, giving uh, those a whirl. And then I have two varieties that are from a, um, a breeder, um, God, whose name escapes me now. 
it'll come to me. Um, but a, uh, a, a new great breeder, um, who is, I think he was working institutionally for like university of Minnesota or something, but now he's struck out on his own. And, um, he's released a couple of varieties. One is Verona. Another is a uh, petite pearl. Um, and, uh, I encountered Verona those. And- Petite. No, just repeating those names, Verona and Petite Pearl. Pearl, yeah. Um, the name Tom Plocker, but I think he's the guy who turned me on to um, this breeder. So forgive me for not remembering. I knew that it was in my head um, a couple months ago, but um, yeah. So, so um, are you the, a the, guinea pig for these varieties? Like, are no, you no, no. They're okay. they're commercially available, and there are a lot of folks that okay. are planting up up, up in. Um, um, uh, upper Midwest and in the Northeast, um, there's this uh, organic vineyard in um, in uh, Vermont, so Montpelier Vineyards, um, uh, is, the, is a certified organic vineyard, one of the three on the East Coast, and he grows um, a couple, maybe it is Tom Plocker, um, uh, varieties, um, Ver- uh, Veronin Petite Pearl, and I tasted his wines and said, you know, I, I could do something with this. Um, oh, so nice. just because, you know, he's able to grow them organically in Vermont doesn't mean we can do it in Virginia. So we actually have to get them in the ground and see how they do. Um, just a, just a quick question in terms of your, you were talking about the canopy and pruning. Are you cane pruning versus spur pruning? I would imagine that would be smart considering you. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, We've moved everything in the vineyard over to canes. Um, we okay. initially were assuming that we would need uh, cordons and spurs in order to, um, yeah, yeah, it's complicated, man. Um, so, <laughs> like, we able to hack something off when when it goes bad. No, no. So, like the 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 vineyard is is like a, a system, right? And there are all these things yeah. that are interrelated and you make a decision over on one side and it affects everything else. And so like how you design sure. your vineyard um, is you don't just like say, well, I'm going to do this over here. It's there's this cascade of decision-making, right? And so we knew that we weren't going to spray herbicide. And so if you're not going to spray right. herbicide, that means that you're going to have native vegetation growing up under the vines um, which means then that that the native vegetation is going to be competing for water and resources uh, from your vines. And so um, you don't want to use a low vigor rootstock because you need the vine to gr- grow vegetatively, to grow with enough like oomph, with enough vigor uh, to be able to compete uh, mm-hmm. with native vegetation. So if we knew we were going to have to encourage the super vegetative growth, we had to choose those kind of rootstocks. Um, and our thought was initially that if we had the vines planted really close together, which you have to do if you are going to cane prune, then we would be making a jungly mess. So we planted our vines initially six feet apart. Um, that's too far apart for cane pruning. So I thought we were going to have to do cordons and spurs uh, in order to um, have the vines, um, give them enough space. Um, so they have enough shoots so that they can, um, uh, grow vegetatively and not be all on top of each other. 
and as we were getting into it and we were talking with uh, various um, uh, folks in the know, they were encouraging us to get away from cordons because of the uh, potential for overwintering of disease inoculum and carrying over diseases year after year after year, as opposed to canes where you're laying down fresh wood on that fruiting wire every single season. Um, and so again, sort of like canopy management and sanitation, we are stacking the deck in our favor by cane pruning. But it, <laughs> because the system was set up for vines at six feet apart, now everything that we've planted since, the initial planting, we've planted at four feet apart, which is great for canes. Um, but those vines that are six feet apart, you know, they are struggling to either fill the trellis or we are now, now limiting the vines to having so few shoots that they're, each shoot is growing um, well beyond the point of balance for the vine. So Got it. Um, it would have been nice if we had set that up in the, in the beginning for canes. But I really don't, I, I honestly don't know. Uh -huh. I mean, at some point, the vines should get old and settle down. <laughs> like they're, you know, uh, right. 12 years old now. You know, so if we can get the vineyard to like the vines are 20 years old, they might actually like settle into middle age and maybe we could cruise for another couple <laughs> of decades without them. Like, nice. because, you know, I mean, you know, baby vines are, they are eager to please. They're impetuous. They, they don't ripen the fruit like in any way that winemakers really want them. Uh, like the chemistry is just out of whack. They, you know, they, they just right. are eager to pr uh, prove themselves. Um, and the vegetative growth is just like, it's so unnecessary. It's like they're teenagers. Right. And so if we right. can just get them to the point where they don't think that they have to prove anything anymore. And they just, man, they're just in a, in a, in a rhythm. If, if such yeah. a thing is possible, you know, in Virginia being organic, um, I don't right. know because, <laughs> you know, there's just there is so much um, variable. Uh, there are too, so many variables, and the weather is like this. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's a common thing for um, for every growing region, but the 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 thing that we talk uh, we say in in Virginia is you know typical Virginia insert word here typical Virginia spring typical Virginia su summer atypical right. because we have no idea what our growing season is going to be like. Like last year right. we had 10 days of rain the entire growing season. And that may sound familiar to you out West, <laughs> but 10 days right. of rain, um, you know, like there were just about all farmers apart from grape growers were pulling their hair out last year because they couldn't figure out how to, how to water their fields. You know, like no one was able yeah. like, to like to cut hay last year because it was just so hot wow. and dry. Um, whereas wow. the year before we had like 10 days of sunshine in 2018, you know, and so to have, you know, such opposite seasons, um, consecutively. Didn't you, didn't you get something like over a hundred inches of rain during the growing season alone in 2018? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was outrageous. Um, we, we averaged something like 45 inches of rain annually, uh, in, in our area. And we had over a hundred, but it wasn't like 150. It was like 105, you know, it was, it was right. somewhere close to a hundred. So I, um, I just, you know, a hundred is, is more than double. <laughs> it's enough. <laughs> yes. Um, and then, uh, and then 2020 came along and you, you had frost on mother's day, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was the like last heavy frost. Yeah. I mean, it, I would be reluctant to call it frost. It was six hours below freezing. So it was, it was a solid freeze. Um, and, uh, so everything that was green, wow. 
you know, in the whole vineyard, um, it was something like maybe less than a hundred shoes. Worse than frost. Yeah. Well, wow. it's, we've had frosts before, um, that have, you know, when we've had, you know, um, 24 inch shoots and we've had frost and we've lost the top yeah. six inches of a shoot, you know, you know, so we, we've had frost, right. um, or, or freeze events that have taken anything from an insignificant portion of the shoot to the entire shoot. It just is, it's, um, how long, um, the temperature is below freezing and how much of it, like we've had our, our trunks, uh, de-suckered, you know, like, um, you know, you have these suckers that grow off the trunks that right. every year you're going and you're rubbing off with your hands. Um, and we've had frost desucker our trunks for us before. And we've gone out there and going, Oh, well, that saves me a task. Um, <laughs> we've had, you know, and, and also you look at it and go, like, wow, that was really close. Um, right. So the, the relative elevation, um, you know, the, uh, what your vineyard site is in relation to the topography around you, um, uh, matters. And so if you're on the side of a hill, um, then everything just all the cold air just, um, flows off like water to, you know, lower parts of the elevation. Right. But where we have our field is, has, is terrible relative elevation. Um, so we're in sort of a bowl. So we're, uh, we're we have a frost prone site, but we did yeah, what like a lot of folks do is we planted our vineyard where we don't have trees. Um, right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's super Makes convenient. Sense. Yeah. And we have, you know, 15, 20 acres of forest uh, on, you know, hills, uh, forested hillside around us. Um, and, you know, we could do what like a, a lot of other vineyards have done after, you know, 10 years or so. They've, they've put the finances together and said, look, we're going to make excellent wine because we're going to take down trees. And, you know, uh, I'm really reluctant to do that. It's, yeah, there, there's, it, it, part of it is, you know, they're, they're sequestering a lot of carbon and, uh, I, I know they're going to, the, the trees are going to eventually fall down at some point. And, um, but <laughs> if I clear yeah. 20 acres of trees and then the vineyard fails in a couple of years, I will have yeah. done the damage that I, you know, to our, to our farm that I, we, you know, it'll probably take 50 years for that, that forest to recover. Um, right. and I, I can't have that on my conscience, you know? So since yeah. I, I think that we aren't entirely certain that we know what we're doing and I, I don't have confidence that we're going to be successful 20 years from now, I would love it. But, um, you know, I have to assume that at some point, um, at some point the risk is going to catch up with us. Um, it hasn't yet. And like, it's shocking that 2018 didn't do us in, um, but, um, you know, if, if we got a number of wet years again and again and again, maybe, maybe we wouldn't be able to, um, to uh, overcome all of the disease that builds up. And so if we were to take down trees, um, I would feel, I feel like crap, you know, that yeah, we assumed totally. that we knew what we were doing. So we would deforest, you know, part of the farm. Um, right. But, you know, if we knew what we were doing 20 years from now, I'd say, Hey, you know, it might be an option. Yeah, um, and then we could get up on on the slopes uh, where frost would not be an issue. Well, and uh, just listening to everything you said, it sounds like there could be a fourth prong on that stool of of how to make it work, and that would be site selection. I mean, based on everything you've said, it's, uh, if if you had the luxury of 
choosing an optimal site, that would be another thing that could work in favor of organic viticulture. Certainly. Yeah. Well, you know, um, there's the, certainly and, for long-term sustainability. And, right. And, uh, do you ever wish you had selected a site in California? Yeah. Yeah. I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> just so, when you go through these kind of weird years that you have, I'm just imagine so you, you daydream you, about the kind of conditions we have out here. Right. But uh, you guys are hurting for water, right? I mean, yeah. the, the grass is always greener, right? So we never have to irrigate our vineyards. <laughs> right. We, right. We don't, we don't have side. I mean, if, and if we do, we just take it from groundwater. You know, it's, um, you probably can talk to this and I, I, I'd love for at some point you to address this in your podcast is what is more long-term sustainable, you know, a vineyard on the East coast um, or a vineyard on the West coast, you know, because if you guys are going to be struggling for water, I don't know, you know, um, uh, yeah. You know, I guess it depends on where on the West Coast, right? There, there, are, there, are, there are certain parts where water is right. more of a premium. <laughs> um, right. But, uh, yeah. Once you get below pretty much San Francisco, it, it starts to get dicey. I mean, you do really need to be extremely serious and forward-looking. Um, I mean, even even north of San Francisco in certain areas, but uh, you know. I, I mean, I remember hearing interviews with Napa folks who were, you know, during the the height of the drought that we just got out of two years ago. And they're like, you know, we know there's a drought, but we really basically are fine. Like Napa has its own sort of ecosystem. They get, you know, even in drought years, they're, they're pretty good. I mean, if it went, you know, if it was a 20 year drought, it would be a different story. But, you know, a five year drought, they're still getting plenty of water and have plenty of water. Um, but you go inland you go to lodi you go to you know anywhere in the south south of there uh, in the central coast where a lot of the you know where the grapes that we get come from it is very dicey um and and since you set me up um about east coast versus west coast i mean i really think you know i think what you are having to do everything that you've talked about here just the process that you have to engage in to make things work organically is really like a roadmap that uh, I think it almost makes it like there's no excuse for people not to grow organically on the West coast where we have so little of the pressures that you have to deal with and so many benefits other than, you know, the lack of water uh, that are, you know, just optimal for any kind of grape. You know, I mean, we can do vinifera, but we, you know, if we brought hybrids out here, we'd probably have to do nothing to them. You know, we you could just put them in and probably never spray them. I mean, powdery mildew is probably the worst thing that most vineyards have to deal with if you're clean and healthy in the vineyard. Yeah, and, um, I, and I don't get powdery. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and <laughs> but I think what I guess what I'm saying is I I see the challenges that you face uh, have forced you to not be as lazy or take the shortcuts that you know somebody out here can take because you really just don't have the luxury. Like it's an ongoing, you know, I don't know, battle, but you just can never let your guard down basically. And that has made you more creative and more resourceful. And I think, you know, the, the, you, you are replicating, I think what 
probably our ancient ancestors had to do, which was like they they grew things, certain things worked, certain things didn't. They tried the thing, they kept growing the things that worked and didn't grow the things that didn't work versus the modern perspective, which is we can take anything we want from anywhere in the world and we can make it work because we can kill everything that competes with it and, you know, protect it in ways. And, and I feel like that's not sustainable. It's, you know, it's, that's not a way forward. I think that's a really short-sighted approach to viticulture or any kind of agriculture. Whereas your, your approach is really the evolution of, moving forward with viticulture like uh, and i want to get i want to ask throw this back on you i don't want to just go on a tangent here but you know you have talked about um you know the grapes that you have now you've suggested are probably not the end of the line for you that there there's that this is more about a process and that you imagine maybe 20 years 25 years from now you'll be growing different grapes um and and i i and that sounds accurate to what you you've said, right? I'm not putting words in your mouth. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I I'd I'd be surprised if I'm growing the same varieties, but you know, if <laughs> I, I don't <laughs> right. know. I mean, who knows? Maybe I could be growing. I'd be growing muscadine, you know, uh, twenty years right. from now because it's the only thing that you know you can grow organically. I don't know. I, mean, um, I think. I, I guess I. The, it seems like the pro you've realized that the process is more important than I like this grape. Therefore I'm going to make it work. And, and, and I think what's beautiful about that is it, the process that you have to embrace is the process of adaptation and evolution in terms of moving viticulture forward. So I think that's why when I say East coast versus West coast, I see the future in, in what you're doing versus the kind of, import vinifera you know just grow a huge monoculture vinifera vineyard in california because you can and because it's easier to do versus you are kind of the future like the interesting things the stories that will be that will last and will continue on in the future i think you you're setting the stage for so there's my pat on the back and and (laughs) tangent at all at the same time um but do you, I mean, do you think this process is, is a good model that other people should follow, whether they're conventional or not? Like, do you think that this, you know, do you think there's a strength to it that transcends just what you're doing as, as an organic vineyard and winery? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that it is easy to take the success of your neighbor and replicate it. Um, I think it is hard to step out of your comfort zone. I encourage all new growers, even conventional growers of vinifera, to plant some weird varieties. Uh, whether they be hybrids or vinifera. Because if all you grow is Chardonnay, then all you know is how to grow Chardonnay. You don't really know how to grow grapevines, right? Um, That if you are forcing yourself to do things that are uncomfortable, you'll learn more about 
what it is that you're doing and understand the, the, the repercussions of the decisions that you make out moving. Um, I think that the, the hybrids are able to make wine. Their winemakers are able to make wine from hybrids that are very good. Um, depends on the hybrid, of course. Um, you may not be able to find that Robert Parker epiphany moment from Vidal Blanc, right? Um, you know, there is a certain amount of inherent, uh, beauty or potential for inherent beauty in the Nifra, um, that may not exist in hybrids, but you can make some really good wine from hybrids if you take care of them. Um, particularly if you are not coddling them. Um, uh, if you are Do you, <laughs> exposing I, them I, to a lot. Can I jump? Yeah. Good. I was just saying, can, can, do you think it's fair to say, to qualify what you just said by saying yet, like you can't necessarily achieve the same beauty as Vinifera yet? Like, I mean, isn't, isn't the hybrid game very much in process? Oh yeah, I, mean, yeah. I guess that's kind of what I was alluding to is that we're you're, there's breeders that are still crossing things, still trying to come up with better and better varieties, and we don't know yet where that will end up. We could potentially. I mean, I, I think the goal, right, would be to to have a, a hybrid that rivals, you know, the the greatest of the vinifera and in flavor and wine style, and yet is extremely resistant to all bad things that compete. For you know, in the vineyard. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, great breeding, um, continues to strive for, um, whatever the goals are like up, up to this point, it's been in the United States has been largely, uh, at least on the, uh, East coast, um, uh, Northeast upper Midwest. It's about cold tolerance. Um, but in, in right. Europe, I mean the, the, the peewee movement in Europe, um, it's, maybe three decades old, something like that, where they are breeding grapes for disease resistance and only for disease resistance. Well, I mean, they want wine quality as well, but, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, the peewee variety, like the concept is starting to spill over here into the United States. Um, um, and peewee, uh, if, uh, do you know, do you know what I'm, what the, what I'm referring to this, uh, peewee it's P I W I. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a it's an abbreviation I've heard for. Of it. I'm not a huge German. Word. I can't tell you what it stands for. Yeah, it, it's it. There's a like a German word that's like 50 letters long, and the first four letters <laughs> are P I W I, um, and so it's just easier uh, to say okay. that. Uh, this is coming from someone who's you know has German in the background. Um, so the, um, <laughs> right. the it's Eastern Europe. It's um, you know uh, continental Europe. It's uh, um, uh, Great Britain, you know, there, there are breeders, um, that are making grapes that are trying to find the most vinifera possible, uh, vinifera like characteristics possible with as much disease resistance possible, um, so that they can grow right. grapes organically, uh, in Europe, because I, I mean, I, it's, there is less of an emphasis on sustainable viticulture in the United States, but I think it's changing. And there are more of these peewee varieties that are, have been made in, in Europe are being um, 
uh, are finding their way into the United States are ending up in nurseries um, and are being propagated for for sale. Um, and so um, this is coinciding with um, there being a greater number of younger grape growers who are, pardon me, I had to step away from the computer right At this point in the podcast, we were disconnected by a lightning storm. So there's a little break here. We come back together, and so we'll jump right back into it. Oops. Oh, no. And we're off and running. Well, that was exciting. (laughs) I feel like I was thinking about it. I was like, it's like Mother Nature reminding us that uh, she's in charge, which is what this whole podcast is all about. So it was kind of a nice interlude, a little lightning storm to break things up. Yeah, you, you, we might be broken up again. There are ground strikes around us. So, wow, <clears throat> that's Whatever. exciting. Well, um, well, I know we were talking about varieties and the new peewee varieties and things like that. And I guess that'll lead me to like this question, which is, what are the challenges of marketing and selling the varieties that nobody's heard of? These non-verifera hybrid hybrids, especially there in Virginia. Uh, I, yeah, I don't. We don't have a problem with our varieties being unknown or less well known. You know, for in Virginia, okay. um, people are pretty receptive. Yeah, and I I presume that this is sort of wherever you put. Um, Whatever you, whenever you label a wine in, in our area um, that doesn't have the name of the grape on it, people are pretty open-minded to it. Um, you know, the there are some older um, wine consumers that are very insistent on drinking their Chardonnay uh, or their their you know their Can Merlot. Can you repeat that? Drink, uh, drinking their 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 Chardonnay or their Merlot. Okay, got um, it. But the uh, you know anyone who is under fifty is pretty open minded about like they don't care. Particularly like yeah, um, yeah I, I you you have you have a youthful sounding voice, so I, I would say um, uh, folk, folks folks your age and younger um, um. They they uh they don't care. I mean, they really don't care. There's like put something in front of me that and I that I've never heard of before, you know that yeah. you tell them the name of the grape. There's obviously no recognition in their eyes, but there's also like a sense of adventure in their eyes. Like they re- they just want something to be to taste good. It's a bonus that like there's um uh, a good narrative behind the wine and behind the, the the vineyard, and they feel like they're doing something positive like by by supporting us and like that their principles are being reflected in the wine that they choose um you know but i I like what you just said could you repeat that they're doing something and then it cut out they're doing something by supporting you so i I can't i didn't hear the whole thing i have no idea what i said um okay they're doing something good by supporting you and they're yeah Yeah, okay the, the 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 narrative um like every every wine has has a story right and the the narrative of our vineyard is, is also the principles behind the business. Right. And there's that, that says a bonus uh, for, for them, but they really, all they want is something that tastes good. 
Um, and it helps that we're friendly and that we're not like pretentious and all that just goes along into like not growing tenifera. You know, in, in our area, there are, um, folks that are fairly serious about growing grapes and they only grow vinifera. And, um, I think they're missing out because there's a, at least the, the, the market that we encounter is folks who are not obsessed with the name of the grape. Um, and you know, folks who will only plant vinifera because they think that's the only real wine, I think are really missing an opportunity. They might even be scaring away customers by insisting on growing the noble varieties, you know? Um, right. There are a number of uh, young grape growers and winemakers in Virginia, um, so I assume it's it's the same elsewhere, that are totally open-minded to hybrids. They think it's silly that um, vinifera, that there's this insistence on growing vinifera. Um, right. And um, they're planting it. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're contacting me and said, hey, what varieties um, do you think work well for Virginia? Um, and I have to tell them, look, look, our criteria for planting grapes are different than yours. But, um, you know, and it, it really is encouraging that there is this, this swell of interest in hybrids um, to the point where this, this last um, – uh, every winter, the grape growers in Virginia uh, get together and have a three-day conference uh, in, in Charlotte. So it's the Virginia Vineyards Association, uh, which does incredible work to help educate grape growers, um, but also serves, you know, to as a, um, a central point for this uh, aggregation of resources. And, um, and more than half of this three-day meeting this last February was about new grape varieties, you know, and so we have a um, a president uh, who of the VVA who is super open-minded to, to, to growing hybrids and you know with his leadership um, I think we might see some some movement in, in the industry where hybrids will be considered cool <laughs> and not just yeah. you know like how they have been perceived up to this point is cheap fruit you know because they have disease resistance they tend to have big clusters um, they have um, um, they're where you put, um, it's what you, you plant hybrids where you can't imagine planting your, uh, your vinifera, you know, you give your vinifera your best sites, uh, but you put your hybrids wherever, wherever else, you know, uh, right. and you don't, you don't take care of them because why would you? And, um, <laughs> well, because it's there, they, 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 they grow well, you know, so they can't be good because, um, <laughs> you know, they, they, and, and so they don't put a lot of uh, time and attention into them. And then they, the wines are lackluster, you know, and right. um, there are several. So, go ahead. Self-fulfilling, I was going to say. That's what it seems like from my perspective. But, you know, again, this is just our perspective. All we grow are hybrids and we take care of them like folks would take care of their vinifera if they had to, you know? Um, yeah. Like, I mean, like I'm out there. um, I'm out there absolutely baby, not babying, babying, because I don't coddle our vines, you know, but like we're out there picking off individual leaves and like walking by going, oh, let me get that lateral too. And, you know, um, we really are giving them the TLC that, that we need to give them. But if anyone really treated their hybrid grapes with the love and care that they treat the vernifera, they would be shocked by the wine quality they could get out of them. And so there, there are folks in Virginia, there are, there are several vineyards that just grow hybrids. 
Um, and um, I mean, I, I, I think things are starting to, to, to take hold where, um, you know, there's this, um, there's this development of, of plant material from outside the United States. Um, I mentioned Tom Plocker's varieties, Verona and, and Petite Pearl. Um, there um, is probably going to be some peewee development in the U.S. also. Um, and then, you know, there are all these private grape breeders, um, which are constantly um, uh, making new material uh, that it's, it's just like rolling the dice. Eventually, you're going you're gonna to come up with snake eyes, right? Eventually, you're going right. to get it. Um, because it's not like super exact and, or pardon me, precise, like, like, um, uh, gene, uh, manipulation is right. Uh, or you can just right. switches on and off. Like this is every time with classical breeding, it's like you're rolling the dice every single time. Uh, and the odds are not in your favor with classical breeding, but you roll the dice enough times and you're going to get a winner. Right. Um, right. and so I, I mean, I have a lot of hope in the future of great breeding. Um, but it's it's one of those things where I really would like someone else to do it <laughs> because it requires a lot of time and a lot of space, and it's it's just a lot of a lot of work. I mean, the the the, the all of these commercially available hybrids, the thousands and thousands of seedlings that went into that you know over two three decades worth of the, the different stages that you need to go through before you finally like release and name a variety. Um, I mean, that's why institutions generally are the ones that are doing it because you require so much space and this long-term funding. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, yeah I mean, like a lot of the varieties that we grow, like the year that they're released, it's 20, 30 years earlier was when that um, pollination happened. And you know that from the the index number, um, you know, from the oh, wow. institution. Um, so you know, it, private breeders certainly can do it uh, and have done it. Um, but um, you know, my my faith is still in institutions because they have the big picture in mind. But most yeah. of them, it's it's hard to it's hard to get an institution. Um, again, I'm just talking out of my uh, out of my butt here. It's just from my understanding, not from firsthand experience. Um, is that they're it's hard to sell uh, a breeding program on disease resistance because there just isn't any oh. money in it. Well, I mean, how many grape growers on the East coast are, are organic, uh, right? Just right. a few. Right. But if right. you can sell cold tolerant varieties, you can sell millions of, of, of vines, you know? Um, so um, the, the peewee uh, material that's now in the U S um, is starting to see it, you know, it's starting to get planted. And I'm really looking forward to uh, getting my hands on more of it, but also to see other folks try it and go, this is every bit as good as the vinifera we have in the ground and we don't have to spray it, but half the time, why am I growing vinifera? You know, and I don't, I mean, I, I love, I love vinifera. I buy a lot of vinifera wine for myself. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, but in, you know, in terms of like suitability yeah. for mid Atlantic, I, I wonder. You know, yeah, it, no, clearly it's, it doesn't seem well suited. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, de- delicious taste. Yeah, I agree. Totally. Um, yeah. So in full disclosure, have so, you ever made wine from hybrid grapes? Have I? Um, that's a good question. No, I don't think I, uh, 
No, I don't think I have. No, I haven't. Because I, 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 all my winemaking has been on the West Coast. And I mean, I just can't even find any out here. I would if I could. I was just trying to remember if I had like done some weird grocery store purchase of grapes to make wine as an experiment. But no, I mean, and even that it wouldn't have been a hybrid um, in the way that you're talking about. But um, no, I don't think so. We just, I mean, I, I kind of dream of one day having a vineyard and I would love to plant a hybrid grape, you know, at least as a trial to do exactly what you're saying, like plant it alongside some vinifera or for whatever and grow it in the same way, treat it with the same care and, and, and then, you know, see what it tastes like and see how it does in California because nobody's doing it out here. And I really think, like you said, the the next generation is much more open. I would even say beyond open. I'd say they're hungry for something new, like the story. I mean, part of that that unfamiliarity and the uniqueness of these grapes is part of the, their story, and and it gives it adds novelty. It's it adds a fascination element that I think a lot of people are hungry for. Um, I mean, I yeah, I think the the weirder the more popular in some circles, you know, um, to the point that, you know, I really think to a certain extent, people aren't even, they don't even care, like you said, about varieties at all. They really just care about the story behind that wine. Whether you know, like what was that vineyard all about? Like why, like how old is it? Like what, why does it exist? What's the history of it? What went into, What's the backstory that led to this bottle of wine? And that is what they want to taste. They, I mean, it, they could care less what, you know, what varieties it's from. They want to taste that sort of historical, uh, st- you know, narrative that arrived in front of them in a glass. And and I, I think more and more that's the case. I think more and more, especially like you said, the next generation is... Is that's what's happening? Um, that's what I see a lot of, especially here in Los Angeles. There's a big, you know, I think it, that's a, one of the really positive things about the natural wine movement. Um, but it's and millennials uh, in general seem to be all about that. Um, so it's it's almost easier to sell an esoteric thing with a great story than like a really delicious Pinot or Cabernet, which is just seen as pedestrian at this point <laughs> it's all about perspective um, yeah 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 and I, and it does depend on the circles you know the, there's i mean the great thing is i think there's something for everybody it's like you know i i don't think there's a right or wrong like i i i love wine i love all wine so i i'm that way like i want to try it all if i taste something and i love it i really don't care it could be a napa cab or a big buttery oakery chardonnay if i love it i love it and or it could be you know and and i want to ask you the question that uh the young winemakers are asking uh young wine growers are asking which is what what does work what has worked for you guys i don't think we've named them yet on in this talk so if you want to talk about what's worked for you and what your what your main grapes are right now and and then maybe describe what they taste like as a finished wine yeah, I'm thinking because like nothing works. <laughs> um, what works? Well, yeah, everything, everything is everything is flawed. Um, 
Well, I will say, I, I mean, let me put in a plug in for you. You you very kindly and generously sent me a bottle of your white and your red, and I love them both. They were delicious. The white was one of my favorite whites I've had. I mean, just super refreshing, you know, not overly complicated, but like just delicious, just a easy drinking, delicious, beautiful white. Um, and the red, the same, same thing. Like it was just a lush, yummy red, like, you know, a, could have been a red blend from the central coast easily um of california that is as opposed to the central coast of the east coast <laughs> um yeah both really good i thought so if you if you're having problems you you still have some good things to show for your efforts oh, yeah but, uh, it, it, it's it's like uh like in the theater like all the uh, all the chaos can be behind the curtain uh as long as the audience doesn't know about like how part of the theater. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. So the, the varieties that we currently grow production varieties, I'm only down to one white variety production variety, and that's Cayuga white, which is a variety released by Cornell in the mid seventies. Um, Cayuga is itself a fairly neutral variety in terms of like flavor profile, one, one, um, characteristics. Could you repeat that again? It's a fairly, fairly neutral, um, neutral. So, uh, as opposed to um, uh, like an aromatic variety, um, uh, Cayuga tends to have some citrus zest. Um, it is not um, opulent in any kind of way. Uh, it's often used as like a base wine, particularly up in like Ohio and New York State, where you can then put like a small percent of uh, something with a little more fruitiness like Niagara or something like that. Um, but, um, Cayuga for us is proven to be very malleable. Um, we use it for a, uh, dry Germanic style wine, like the one that you've tasted, um, sweeter Germanic. That was great. Really liked, I mean, and I shared it with, uh, we had a tasting party and, it was a crowd pleaser. No joke. We had like 30 different people tried it and, and didn't know what it was. It was a brown bag thing. And then I revealed it and they were just, everybody was blown away. Nobody uh, expected uh, anything hey, in that universe. Thanks for doing that. That was nice. Um, Absolutely. No, it was, it was, it was great. It, so um, uh, we've done it in barrel fermented, sparkling wine uh, we've made from Cayuga. Um, yeah. So we've done, you, you can do a, kind of like Chardonnay in that it is so um, it's so flexible. Um, you can sort of fit it into a, a number of different wine styles, but mm. you can't make like, like a Prosecco, <laughs> you know, or, or uh, um, obviously, or a, um, uh, like, a, uh, it's not going to be mistaken for a soft Blanc or a Gewurz or something, you know, it's just, it's not aromatic um, and perfumey, um, but it is, it makes a good, like bracingly dry uh, wine. Um, the uh, Cayuga is a, it's a big berry, uh, which really scared me the first time we saw it. Um, it, it they, well, I, I'd never grown it before, you know, um, and I didn't know yeah. anyone in Virginia that grew it. Um, so the first year, um, so for comparison, right? Um, most of my wine grapes, the berries are like one and a half grams. Like I have one big berry that's like, almost two grams of berry. I consistently get over three grams of berry for Cayuga. And so like when you see these, these, these grapes like get big and big, like the first year we were growing Cayuga, um, 
I, you know, that, that first night I was, um, I saw it and was terrified. I had dreams that like of harvesting grapefruit sized grapes, you know, um, because I'm thinking to myself, my God, like it's never going to end. All we need is like one cluster per vine. Um, uh, it turns, you know, that they, they do stop growing. Um, but three grams is a huge berry. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, behaves, you know, it, 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 it does what you want it to do. It's, it's disease resistant. It's really a pleasure to grow. Uh, it's fairly resistant to just about everything except for one, one disease that we have uh, called anthracnose that has been a real challenge for us lately. Um, uh, and that's it. We have other trial varieties, um, um, more trial white trial varieties have failed than have succeeded, but we still have one called Bianca, which is a Hungarian hybrid. That's one of those peewees. Um, um, let's see, uh, St. Pepin, which is another hybrid from the upper Midwest. Um, I think that's it on white, uh, white trial varieties. Oh, we got others that aren't, aren't producing yet. Things we just planted this year. Right. Um, Too early to tell, I guess on those. Yeah. And you know, they may not make it to, uh, to the fruit stage. Cause you know, you, you grow them for a couple of years just to grow the structure of the vine. And usually by that point, you know, if, it, if the, uh, the foliage is resistant enough to see it for a third year and then that third year, then you are going to evaluate the fruit for disease resistance. So, right. um, that's, that's sort of the process. So yeah, not that's a, it's important. I, I think it's important to underline that for people who aren't familiar with wine grape growing that you know you've been through 50 plus varieties and each one of those represents probably you know to really unless it's getting succumbing before you ever get to the fruiting stage it can be a three-year process plus till you really get to see the whole cycle of that because you need really three years or two years of solid vegetative growth where you pulling the grapes off to let the vine structure develop and then the third year you can finally let grapes hang and then you get to you know evaluate that like you just said but that's like i mean that's a lot of time considering 50 varieties in three years each you know that's that's significant i think it's important to underline that that's yeah well you have to you have to do it in some ways Yeah. yeah i mean i i i'm you know i'm in awe of the programs of grape breeders but you know, this is not super scientific, but you got to put it in the ground and you got to wait. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you need, yeah. Um, because something may be disease resistant in Hungary, like this Bianca variety I mentioned. Um, uh-huh. yeah, and obviously they don't have black rot uh, because it's not resistant to black rot. I know that. Wow. Um, you know, but I think this ver- this trial variety we've had in the ground maybe seven years now. And every couple of years, I think, oh, I'm going to get rid of it now. And I just, I don't. Um, you know, so sometimes. <laughs> laziness um, or, or hopefulness. Well, so, yeah, well, it, it depends on expectations, right? Like, <clears throat> yeah. We had one, one trial variety was a red variety that was released from Cornell back in, I don't know, 2011, maybe. Um, 2013. Is this, the, is this the Arendelle? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it, I heard, I mean, I remember reading articles and being really excited about it, and I don't usually ever hear of, like, new hybrid releases, so there must have been some fanfare to it. It was definitely in the press, and, you know, the word got around, and then 
I think that's how I actually I discovered you was I called the other organic winery in Virginia that had existed up until that time. And they'd sort of banked their whole business and, and organic, you know, hopes on Arendelle and found out, oh, it's not resistant to black rot and maybe some other things too, and had to switch over or else lose the whole vineyard. And they said, well, you know, talk to Carl. He's, he's actually doing it. And that's actually their referral to you was because they failed at Arendelle and they sent me to you. That's how I basically found you. Yeah. Arendelle, I think is a, is a success story for the marketing of Cornell. Um, they, I don't know if it was um, purposeful or if it was um, maybe one of the grad students was super excited and happened to know a journalist or something, but yeah, I mean, I was I was following it too. Like the the variety was un uh, unnamed. Uh, it was out in the literature as not literature, but it was out in the in the ethos as, as existing. Its nickname was No Spray Three Hundred One because its right. index number was zero nine five dot three hundred one dot blah blah blah. Right. So it was the three hundred and first seedling from nineteen ninety five. Um, and uh, yeah, I was totally excited about No Spray 301 when we finally were able to get, um, uh, you know, non-named variety from uh, that variety from uh, the nursery. We put it in the ground and, was, you know, I was like, you know, we don't do anything um, uh, large scale. Like it's a toe in the water with everything. You know, like you have to, imp- the variety has to impress me for several years before I'm going to put like an acre of something in. Um, right. And, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, every opportunity that variety had to disappoint me, it did. Uh, and, but part of it was cause I went into it with just such high expectations right, for that variety right. and it got everything. And, um, yeah. it wasn't a no spray variety in Virginia. Maybe it was in, in New York. Um, but it wasn't, yeah. wasn't on our farm. And, um, right. in addition to that, it, when it wasn't ripe, it was offensively vegetative. Um, oh. well, you know, like the methoxypyrazine that you'll get in some yeah. crabs. Yeah, no, I, I know what um, you're talking about, yeah. But not like, like bell pepper would be nice. This was like jalapeno pepper. Like it was mm. awful. Um, so yeah, it's that, you know, but that's, that's what happens. And so, you know, some varieties don't make it to the fruit stage and you get rid of them. So I can't speak for, uh, Valvin Muscat, which is another Cornell variety or Brianna, which is probably a hybrid. If you are going to find a hybrid in California, you'll probably encounter Brianna. Um, okay. Uh, you might also encounter a Blanc de Bois, uh, which is a variety that was developed for Pierce's disease resistance that's being planted in Texas. But you, my understanding is that you guys are having some Pierce's disease issues in California. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Blanc de Bois might be planted up there for that. It's fairly neutral, like Cayuga. Um uh, so to answer your question, other red varieties. So we red, grow, yeah. we grow a, um, a variety from University of Minnesota called Marquette. Um, it's um, it's really well, that's one. I, I've definitely heard of that one getting around. I've I've tasted Marquette from Vermont. I've uh, I, I know people who are having a lot of great success with Marquette. I don't know that they're doing organic. I'm probably sure that they're not, but. It's definitely one that seems to have pleased more people in terms of the resulting wine. Uh, it, you know, it, it seems like it has lent 
itself to be uh, happy making to making people happy in terms of its flavor oh yeah Mar- marquette's wonderful i mean it um yeah. it uh berries are super tiny um yeah, nice. uh, the it's red flesh variety um so making a rosé from it is challenging um oh it's a tenturier you mean yeah no wow. um um so tiny berries um you're talking like one and a quarter grams um, they're like blueberries or small blueberries. Um, wow. Um, tiny clusters. Um, so I can't really compare them to like uh, vinifera, but occasionally, like we'll we'll post like a picture of a of a handsome Marquette cluster, and someone will say, "Whoa, are you growing Petit Verdot now?" And I'm like, "No." But so you know, <laughs> I, I guess you know, they're it's not unusual that there are other grape varieties that have tiny berries, but um, and it's I've, a real I've it's a real small make, cluster. I I was shocked. And I, I mean, I don't know if they were capitalizing because they didn't list ingredients, but the, I remember the one I had from Vermont was like 15% alcohol. And I was like, did they ripen it in Vermont to get it to 15%? I mean, maybe you can talk to that. Is it, does it ripen early and give uh, that? Yeah, it, it's an early variety to break. Um, so it's an early variety to ripen. Um, okay. So it, it breaks for us before anyone's Chardonnay breaks in Virginia. Um, okay. which means it's problematic, um, for frost susceptibility. Um, yeah. you know, right. our frost date is mid May and it breaks <laughs> like a month and a half before the frost date. Um, so, wow. so that, that's problematic, you know, from a, um, like site selection standpoint. Right. But, um, right. No, uh, it ripens at like 26 bricks. Um, wow. And if your conditions are ideal, you can easily surpass 30, um, you know, as, as the berries start to dehydrate. Uh, the first year that we had our test finds in the ground, we picked at 32 bricks and that's when, you know, like my mind just exploded because like, you gotta be kidding me. We're doing organic (laughs) and 32 bricks. Um, now that creates balance issues, obviously, um, but if that was the only variety that we have, then we couldn't blend away the alcohol. Um, so Marquette is a high sugar, high acid variety. So okay. we're picking it. Uh, our goal is somewhere like 25, 26 bricks. Um, and so that'll bring us somewhere around 15 to 16% alcohol um, uh, based on you know, with- the conversion percentage. What's your pH when you're picking it? Yeah, so that that depends, and, and it has changed as the vines have gotten older. Thank, thankfully, uh, those young vines, okay. um, as I said uh, earlier, the chemistry is all wonky with with young vines. Yeah, um, we were struggling to get past like three one in pH. Wow. You know, with a TA of like nine, um, okay. and you know you can you can do something with that. You know, with you can cold soak yeah. to get your pH up. We don't do cold soak yeah. anymore. Um, you know, a malactic fermentation, you know, will reduce some of your acid, but not a lot. Um, but again, we have another grape that we chose to blend down the acid, to blend down the alcohol. Um, so the other red variety that we grow is Corona War, which is a Cornell release from 2006, I think. Um, and um, so that's, It's pronounced Coro. Not Corit Noir. And I don't know. Um, I, I think <laughs> Bruce, Bruce Reich, um, the, the grape breeder at Cornell, he presented at this VVA meeting we had in, in, uh, in February. Um, and I'm pretty sure he said Corona Noir. 
Um, okay. But, you know, great. It's hey. it's a made up word, so you can pronounce it any way you want. Um, <laughs> no, I I honestly don't know. I I I just in my mind have always said it in my mind as Corot Noir, but it makes a lot of sense to call it Corot Noir. Um, yeah. So what? Uh, so that variety in. is a low sugar, low acid grape, right? And so we okay. we planted varieties, um, and we did this for the whites too, but we've pulled the whites out. Um, we planted varieties for the purposes of blending, um, and knew that, you know, any, any one variety, um, was going to, uh, be imperfect, you know, and Marquette, you know, had a lot of promise, but its chemistry was, was problematic. Like you can only do so much with, you know, a 15 or 16% alcohol red, um, and particularly with high acid, right? So, yeah. um, you know, so we, we do make one wine that's a hundred percent Marquette, but it's, it's sweet. Uh, and it's, you know, Asian right. whiskey barrels, you know, so it's, uh, it's like, it's like candy. It's like porty. Right. Right. Um, yeah, of course. and that works, but that's not the wine that most red wine drinkers want. Right. So, um, we pick Corona Ward around 19 or 20 bricks and it really doesn't get any, I mean, you, it's not going to go past 20. Um, and at some point it, it, the pH is going to fall off a cliff. So you really just have to like, wait, wait, wait. And if you know, you're at three, four, you're picking tomorrow. If you don't, you're just going to be three, eight or three, nine before you, you know, you get a chance to schedule the pick. Wow. Um, so you, um, so you blend this low sugar, so low alcohol, um, low acid wine with Marquette and you get a nice balanced wine. That's, that's what you tasted. And are you co-fermenting or are you fermenting separately and then blending? Uh, fermenting separately and blending. Uh, they're, okay. they're, you know, they were picking them three, four weeks apart. So it would be nice, uh, if I could put them a little closer oh, together. Yeah. I would love to take the skins, you know, after we press off the Marquette and throw it in the Corona War, but the timing, has only worked on that once. Um, right. So. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of fun stuff you could do. You could do like the Syrah thing and blend like Marquette with like a, a small percentage of a white as well to do like, a, you know, like with the Cayuga or something to get that color and flavor boost that you get from Viognier with Syrah kind of thing. I mean, who knows if it would work, but. We, yeah, we haven't done it with Marquette, but we did that when we grew Vidal, Vidal Blanc. Um, uh-huh. We did that with Corona Noir. We would press oh, off okay. the Vidal. Uh, if it was like super ripe, we'd press it off and then throw it in. the. We short vat our, our reds. And so we would throw it in the vats with the Corona Noir um, just to try to build a little more structure uh, in the wine. Oh, nice. How was it? Was it? And what percentage were you doing that? God, that was years ago. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Just curious. I, yeah, it was. I would say it was somewhere like fifteen or twenty percent by weight. So you know, a significant okay. amount. Um, yeah, that's good. Well, um, what are you geeking out about right now? I imagine you have to sort of continually be learning as a wine grower in Virginia. But you know, what's what? Do you, what what's really fascinating you now? What what? What ideas or what big ideas are you, you know, obsessing about right now? Hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's sort of triage every day. Um, <laughs> you don't have time to get stuck on anyone. Yeah, well, be, because it's you sort of like are moving from one potential disaster to another. Um, you know, n- nothing is ever on schedule. You're always behind on everything. Um, uh, I mean, if if you had a hundred vines, you could take care of them perfectly, but we have more than that, <laughs> you know? And so you, you, you have to unfortunately make decisions like, well, you aren't going to get shoot positioned correctly because I have to take care of this other variety. Um, you know, um, right. so in the, in the off season, that's usually when I entertain, um, like, Ooh, what, what new and fun and exciting things uh, can we do? And like what I'm most excited about is new varieties, uh, and yeah. trying to, you know, I've been, uh, l- like I was eagerly waiting for, for Arendelle to, to, to get uh, released. Like I'm waiting for a couple of these peewees that are finally right. over in the U S there's, um, there's one called Galubak, uh, which is a Ukrainian variety, uh, which is up at, um, up at Washington state clean plant network. Um, it'll be a couple years before they're able to like get it to nurseries and, you know, have enough material to propagate, but I'm looking forward to that one. Um, um, and then there are others that I just can't get into this country. <laughs> you know, that we're, I, 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 we have one, um, we have one of our wine clubbers, uh, we have a wine club. It's a, it's a force of volunteers. They work out with me in the vineyard and one is from Ukraine and I've been um, having her translate with a great breeder out in Ukraine to try to figure out how we could possibly get material into this country. Uh, cause it has to go through proper channels. Um, oh yeah, sorry, I didn't say that. What would you say? <laughs> Smuggle it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lacey Act violations are are pretty severe, particularly when you document that you're aware of it in your podcast. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we'll delete this part. <laughs> um, uh, but um, yeah, like uh, things got to go through proper channels, and it's it's just really hard. I mean, the whole um, uh, near obliteration of the French wine industry with phylloxera made everyone take moving. Vitus across international borders really seriously. Um, <laughs> and yeah. like, you can't like forget it roots. Like I don't think it's going to only come in as dormant cuttings. Um, but still like they have to come in from a, um, they have to go through proper channels. And if, if the material is not going to come from a, Oh, what'd be the term? Um, if it doesn't carry a phytosanitary certif- certificate, like it's not coming from like a nuclear repository, um, uh-huh. and it has to go to like, um, one of two or three quarantine sites in the U S and then it has to get right. micro shoot tip propagated, um, and, you know, essentially started from scratch. Um, right. and then, and then it has to be tested and then it'll get released. So it's like 10 years. Um, wow. you know, or you can like accelerate the process by paying money and like, maybe you could have it in five or seven years. Um, so getting new material into this country is really hard. And that's why it's usually yeah. nurseries that do it um, yeah. because they can invest it in the nurseries. They have the big, they got the big picture, the, the, the long game in mind, um, but they have to know that people want it. So it's like, it's the chicken or the egg. Um, oh, yeah. And, uh, but you know, there are, there are, there are a couple of uh, nurseries, particularly on the East coast that we've worked with that, um, you know, there um, are, that they've let me know, <laughs> you know, we, right. We, we have this guy's varieties and you're like, oh, oh, goody, goody, goody. When can I get them? And I was like, well, we're talking right now, like 
four or five years from now tops just to get like a couple of dormant cuttings to play with. Um, so that's what I'm, that's what I'm excited about. When I, when I look towards the future, it's what new varieties could we potentially grow that are going, that we will be growing for the next 50 years, you know, right. or it could be that for the next 50 years, we're just going to keep trying new varieties and go, well, we're not as good as what we have right now. Yeah. But we won't know right. until we put things in the ground. Right. And it's, I don't, I don't know if we talked about this, but the, the, the philosophy that this is based on is the idea that the plants sh should be self-resistant, that you're, you're, you're looking for something that is, well, I guess we did talk about this, but you, you're essentially trying through you, the organic process that you go through to, to select for the vines that can take care of themselves and don't need the sprays and everything. Um, yeah, yeah, we, I mean, that's that's long-term sustainable on Mid-Atlantic is vines you do not have to spray often because right. you know you <laughs> the rain's going to come and wash off what you just sprayed. Right. You know, it, you really need varieties that are um, that are going to stick up for themselves. I mean, right. minimal intervention is is understandable, but you, you shouldn't have to um, to spray conventional fungicides i think um to be able to produce grapes i don't think that's long-term sustainable um yeah. you know in a, in a year like 2019 where it never rained it was easy to be an organic grape grower it was easy to be a conventional grape grower um but in 2018 where it just rained and rained and rained it was hard for any i mean <laughs> there were no farmers that had a good year um right. and you know how often are we going to see those? That was the worst that we've seen in the I don't know, 10 plus years that we've been growing grapes. But um, I think we should, uh, we should expect, we should build into the business model that those are going to be frequent enough. You know, if right. we, we can't endure uh, 2018 twice every decade, then we've structured the, the farm plan wrong, I think. Um, so, of course, you know, this is coming coming from someone who lost 90% of their crop this year to frost. <laughs> what what farm plan accounts for that? Um, so uh, I'm not really um, listening to my own advice. <laughs> well, it sounds like you are uh, equal parts um, optimistic, brave, and 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 short-term memory <laughs> uh, loss, I guess. <laughs> like, if you... If you don't don't dwell on the bad thing that just happened. Just move forward and and go on, um, and try to forget that. Well, you got to remember enough to avoid you know <laughs> yes. the stupid mistake you made last time. But um, I know there is there is um, something very um, uh, refreshing about the uh, this this line of work, right? So. You can take that failure, and so long as you know you're not uh, accumulating disease inoculum year after year, um, you can use it as a learning experience, right? Um, I would hope that 50 years from now, I would know what I'm doing better. Like, I would hope that I'm a little more confident, a little less anxious about yeah. about farming. Um, in fact, I, I would hope that at some point someone might call me a farmer, <laughs> you know, instead of just a grape grower, because I think that, um, you know, it, it suggests that you understand um, the system that you are working in. Um, 
So I know I, I don't know if, if if farmer has like a pejorative term, but I, I see it as like the ultimate sign of like respect because you know you're you are just like elbowing out a little part of 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 that of nature for whatever it is that you're trying to grow. Um, that, that's funny you say that. I just wrote a blog article earlier a couple months ago called um, farmers are cool and and it was all about like how you know I'd grown up I grew up in a you know not too far away from where you are just a little further north across the Mason-Dixon line where it's all you know it was all sort of like farmers had that American gothic vibe like it Mm. was Mennonite and old German you know little little farms little dairy farms and thing like that very you know very severe very deprive deprivation and hard work and that kind of image of farming and because of that I just you know it was considered you know the ag schools were the lower you know the like look down on you would you know the liberal arts schools look down on the ag schools etc cetera, etc cetera, all through and then I got to you know where I am in my life and I'm like I should have been a farmer like I would have been happier the whole way along <laughs> like even with all of the difficulties and everything that go along with it that you clearly are very familiar with but yeah there's something really rewarding about it and and I think right now we're potentially at the verge of a another agricultural revolution I mean I think we we we've, we've been doing bad agriculture for long enough and a lot of people are catching on that there needs to be change and a lot of people are doing it there's just all over the place little things i'm hearing of really cool farms that are doing really cool things all across the country you know i just found out about farm in you know north dakota or south dakota today and you know it's like every day i learn about a new place that's really embracing a regenerative approach, a holistic approach to agriculture, you know, that are eschewing synthetic sprays and chemicals and are trying to look at diversity and, you know, soil science and in a whole new way so that it's sustainable in a very long-term way and, and self self-regenerating. And, and uh, I don't know, I think you're right there. You fit right into that pretty well. So maybe you're already a farmer and don't know it. Um, or maybe you consider yourself a farmer and, uh, you know, my, my last question to you, do you have any, well, not my last question. My second to last question is, do you have any resources or books or things that you would recommend that were, have been helpful to you as, and, and educational in terms of doing what you do? I mean, like the grape growing side of things. Sure. Yeah. I mean, or just in general, I mean, you know, books that have inspired you to, to, to do what you're doing, books that have helped you do what you're doing with the, with the winery. Um, I mean, it could be directly related to grapes or it could be some bigger, bigger picture idea. Yeah. So there's, there are a lot of books that are called like the organic, the, you know, right. A lot of them are them all. Well, a lot of them are written for um, uh, folks who live in parts of the country where it doesn't rain in the summertime. So they're not entirely <laughs> relevant. Um, they're very pretty, though. Um, and <laughs> But the picture of optimism uh, is... Um, uh, yeah... Well, you know, the, the uh, th- maybe there's an opportunity here. I mean, I think you have a really methodical 
way of thinking about what you're doing. The, you, you have a process that you can really outline. You might uh, be the person that needs to write that book for the for the mid-Atlantic organic farmer, since I yeah. don't know that anybody else has as much information as you do at this point. Maybe, maybe when the kid's in college, um, <laughs> I, I can turn over the vineyard to someone else. That there, so there is a book, the very first book that I was given, um, it, was, it was a Christmas present by my wife when we were kicking around the idea of planting grapes. And so she actually got it all, sort of the whole thing started. So it's called The Organic Grape Grower. And it's... Um, uh, authored by the late Ron Lombau. I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Um, it is a fantastic introductory guide to grape growing and all things organic. And so I think he had a vineyard in Oregon, a small vineyard. Um, and he was a collector of grape varieties as well. So he's got a lot of information about weird varieties and this and that. And, and that was a um, super easily digestible book. Um, uh, I can't tell you who the name of the publisher was, but it's called The Organic Grape Grower. And it, it may not be in print anymore because he, he passed um, over a decade ago. But um, if someone I wants... I feel like to, I've heard it. I've heard of it. I'm pretty sure. I, I know other people who have mentioned it to me. Um, uh, so I, I know enough people have have purchased it in the past. Um, but it's great. It's got pictures, you know, um, uh, and the, the, just the, he's a good writer. Um, so that everything is very clear. Um, in terms of what's relevant for mid Atlantic, uh, or East coast, um, uh, Dr. Tony Wolf, uh, who is the head of viticulture at Virginia tech, um, particularly the research arm. He has so many titles, so I'm, I'm not going to let everyone know, uh, how impressive and important and influential he has been, but he is the head of Virginia Tech Viticulture at the very least. Um, right. And um, uh, does he, he have does he have like a blog or publications or anything? Does he have oh, certainly. Stuff? Yeah, yeah. So um, the the thing that I'm gonna uh, refer to is this. Um, uh, it's a handbook for uh, grape growing on the East Coast, and I don't know the exact name of it, but he's he. Uh, it's a um, uh, collection of of articles on all everything from site selection to insects to you know diseases. It's spiral bound. It's it is it is the bible for anyone that is growing grapes in Virginia. Um, okay. And it you know it, let me take a, a a moment to mention that the reason that Virginia grape growing is what it is. Uh, is largely due to two people, two Virginia Tech professors. One is Dr. Wolf, um, and you know, he's been doing this for maybe 40 years now. You know, he came out of out of uh, Cornell program, uh, was trained up there, um, but you know, he basically has taken. It's to, all right, let me take a step back. Right, so if you learn how to grow grapes um, in another state or another country, it takes you a better part of a decade. To, re, to figure out what of what you just learned is relevant to this new region that you're in, right? Right. But they're producing information about Virginia grape growing, in-house right. research, training po- folks. Um, and so there isn't this learning curve anymore. Folks are hitting the ground knowing exactly what to do. Um, and so through um, leadership of Virginia Tech, um, 
and uh, and Virginia Tech extension, um, the amount of support that grape growers get is is phenomenal. Um, and then the other person would be um, the now mostly retired. Um, um, oh goodness, Bruce. What's Bruce's last name? Carl emailed me later to let me know. Dr. Bruce's last name is Zoeklin, Z-O-E-K-L-E-I-N. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but there you go. Uh, it'll occur to me. Uh, but he's the head of Virginia Tech Enology, or was. Um, he's mostly retired now. Um, and so from the other side of, of the same coin, like taking Virginia fruit and producing it instead of having a winemaker learn elsewhere and then trying to figure out what are we going to do with this Virginia, these Virginia grapes, some of the chemistry. And, um, and so, uh, the v- Virginia tech is, is the reason why grape growing has come as far as it has in the last 20 or 30 years, uh, in Virginia. And we certainly wouldn't be anywhere, uh, without, without their resources and without their support and, and interest. I mean, we're, we're sort of like oddballs. Like everyone wants to know how the organic vineyard is doing. Um, so every once in a while, someone will check and say, "Hey, are you guys still there?" Yes, <laughs> <laughs> we still exist. Um, well, uh, if you say that long enough, pretty soon they're going to start coming to you for advice. I have a feeling. <laughs> well, all I can do is, is tell them to not do it. I mean, you, you, <laughs> well, you you asked at some point um, today what like would I recommend that someone do this? And no, I can't. I mean. Like there is no template for success. There is no like, oh yeah, we've been growing grapes for thirty years. All you have to do is do it this way. Um, you know, I, I I would love for there to be more organic vineyards in Virginia. I would love to buy fruit, organic fruit from someone. Um, but yeah. again, in good conscience, recommend that someone go out and do it because I don't know that it's going to it's going to be successful. I mean, it's really really hard, and you yeah. you can't just like grow grapes from a tractor. You know, you have to get out there. And touch your vines every single day, um, and there, you know, there isn't a, there are a large window for um, for error. It's it's brutal. Like if you miss something, you get punished. You know, and so I would love for for to recommend that folks plant organic grapes in Virginia, um, but I can't in good conscience say it's a good idea. Um, and so that's usually what I do when someone reaches out and say, "Hey, I just want to know," um, you know. They'll say something like, sometimes they say, like, we just put in five acres of Chardonnay. We want to take care of it organically. How do we do it? And then I have to be the bearer of bad news and say, well, I mean, you made that decision about how you're going to take care of your grapes when you ordered your vines. Um, Right. um, You know, if someone wants to grow grapes organically in like real organic (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not just right. like organic so that you can like tell your customers you're sustainable, but like hold your nose to it and get yourself certified. And then there's no wiggle room to get out of it again. If someone wants to do that, like I'm more than happy. Like if they, if they drink the Kool-Aid, I will, I'll, I'll go and do it with them. But um, I don't want to be held accountable <laughs> for someone losing their, their retirement. Um, you know, because they said, well, Carl said it was easy. Uh, <laughs> well, that sounds like a really good segue into you, me asking for you to, how can people get in touch with you and, and how can they learn more about loving cup and, and get some of your wine to taste? Yeah. Well, you know, we, we got a website like, like everybody else. Um, uh, loving, right. 
lovingcupwine.com. Um, it's got pretty pictures. Uh, yeah. and, uh, you can order wine and there's some, the, I'm, I wrote it, you know, like the, the content. So like, I know it's accurate. Um, and, uh, it's got a lot of nerdy info in it. Um, <laughs> lots of pictures of insects. If you like insects, um, because you know, like insects are everything like, yeah, like we, we, if we, if we didn't have spiders and, uh, lace wings and ladybugs and all those beneficial insects, like we wouldn't have grapes. Right. So, um, right. kind of obsessed about insects, uh, which is weird that we haven't talked about it until now. Um, yeah, but, um, yeah, so there's all sorts of, uh, information on our website and, uh, and you can order wine, you know, and we can ship it to, uh, I think we're up to like 16 or so States. So, um, California is one of them, although there are a few more hoops that you have to jump through if you're shipping to California. Um, but that information is is on the website, how to do it. Okay, great. Love it. Well, Carl, I can't thank you enough. It, It was a true pleasure and I really congratulate you on what you're doing and I hope you don't stop doing it. So thanks for doing this. Well, thanks. Thanks for your interest, Adam. Absolutely. I hope it inspires more people to, uh, to be a little crazy and give it a try. <laughs> um, and know that there's somebody out there trailblazing who they might be able to turn to for, uh, you know, advice or at least commiseration. Yeah. I mean, if, if anyone is growing organically east of the Rockies, they should reach out because I need to know um, who's, in, who's in the club, you know, it's, right. because it, it, we can always share um, successes and failures. And we we're, we're all like trying to get to the same place, but if we can pool information, um, like you could save me a decade of spinning my wheels on something, you know? Uh, yeah. So, yeah. If, if, if anyone's doing it or wants to do it, they should reach out. I love it. Great. Well, thanks again. And uh, we'll talk again soon. I hope. All right, Adam. It was my pleasure. Bye-bye.